Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we are live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Today, we are looking at the ballad of John and Yoko while they follow a new life in New York City. They spend some time in New York City. And we're going to look at that year after they moved in August 1971, which also resulted in the album of the same name. And it's a very fertile and unusual period in their lives and a very sudden right turn from what they were actually doing at the time. It is. This is probably the most... Is it too controversial to say this is the most creative period of John's life? Is it creative? It's certainly he. It's certainly inspired. He has a s- certain injection of beliefs or performance, and he's very visible, and he's doing a lot. He's doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, he's doing a lot of stuff. the 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 jury might be out on whether the stuff is any good or palatable to a mainstream audience. Might be the nice, the better way of putting it. Who are we to judge? But then we have a podcast, so we are the judge. <laughs> so we are, we are judge, jury, judge, Judy, and executioner, as they say. Um, uh, so all of this kind of activity, this kind of chronology, focuses on the album sometime in New York City. So big overarching question, do you like the album? Um, I like parts okay. <laughs> of the album. I like parts of the album. I think yes. when, it's, when it's good, it's very good. And when it's bad, it's absolutely terrible. Yeah, I think that's I think that's as fair as it gets. It has some utterly cringy kind of moments, but it also has some, as you say, there's some some bits yep. that just rock out. And you know, to to kind of go behind the scenes a little bit, we did, you know when you and me were talking about you know episodes and things to talk about on the podcast, we thought sometime in New York City would be a big fiftieth anniversary box set because we had seen. Plastic Ona Band, we had seen Imagine, we had seen the Give Me Some Truth box. There was a very nice remix of Angela from the album on that box set. Yes. And the plan seemed to be, from a website announcement back in January of 2022, that there is an Ultimate Mixes 2022 box set uh, coming out. And we've talked a little bit about this before, that it seems to be permanently on ice. Yes, one of our one of our Bow Street runners was I, uh, um, <laughs> fed back some information to say that essentially there was a dispute or a heated debate uh, between the, the Lennon estate, between Sean on the one hand and the, the record company on the other, regarding the lead track uh, of the album, whether that should or should not, or could or could not be included. And uh, my, my assumption is that that 
led to some sort of standoff and um, the, no sign of a box set yet. And uh, the, is the website still up? I think the website came down. The website came down in the middle of summer, around about the time we kind of found out about this. There was a, a placeholder website, if you went to sometime in nyc.com, and it was a placeholder website that just had a, a logo for the album saying 2022 Ultimate Mix is coming soon. And then that just defaulted to the johnlennon.com website sometime around June or July, and it has yeah. not gone back. You can go onto the Wayback Machine if you want to pull it up and see w- what it looked like. But it, it's, it was the exact same kind of front-end website that we had when the Plastic Owner Band box was announced. There was a, a placeholder website that went up in January 2021. So it seemed that we were just in for the same again, and we weren't. And as you say, yeah, the the the... the, the the strong bit of information is that it's to do with a song that, for the purposes of this podcast, we will call Woman Is. Is Woman that fair is. enough? Woman Is. I think so. Uh, that's probably the, the, the best thing to do. And I, it's it's the song, it's the word, apparently. It's also a word that's emblazoned on the kind of newsprint cover of the album. So that's probably something that's also up for negotiation. Well, yes, you think they could they could move the, the little sticker so whenever the album first came out, there's a nude picture of Richard Nixon dancing with a nude Chairman Mao, and they put an. How did they get them to do that? How did they? How did they agree very, to I don't know. I think I assume they just, you know, some paparazzo at a at a White House party, and so. uh, they covered that up with a sticker. So they could just. Uh, it's probably more acceptable to have a naked Chairman Mao now. So you could just move the sticker from one side of the album to the other. <laughs> I think that's perhaps it, get it, get me get me Sean Lennon on the phone, and I'll. I'll Mediate for a fee. It is a pity. <laughs> yes, it is a pity because I think this album is one that, you know, a remix and a, a, all the attendant paraphernalia of, of performances around it could make it a fascinating box set, could really rebuild the album's reputation. As I said, the Angela remix on Give Me Some Truth totally changes that song and it would remove that kind of, you know, studio murk that, that kind of uh, exists on the album. Yeah, I think I think the album is is not well regarded for several reasons. It is that sort of journalistic. It's quite dated in 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 the once topical subjects it covers. But yes, it, it's a very American sound, and yeah. it's not a sound that people had been used to hearing from John Lennon. It's a sound that he moved away from um, that sort of raw, uh, I say, American bar band sound, which works spectacularly well on some of the tracks. But I think the remix of Angela in particular was. Spectacular. I mean, I was I was fascinated to see what they were going to do, what what was going to turn up from the album on, on the Give Me Some Truth box, and they did a fantastic job. And as you say, there are demos, there are live performances, there are TV shows, there's there's full concert performances around this period. It would be a fantastic box set. Yeah, he like John never toured, but this is the closest we get to a John Lennon album that went on the road or got played yeah. live. There's a lot of yes. live music attached to that, including the the one to one gigs, which we'll talk about later on. But um, you know, and and there's TV performances, there's David Frost shows, all that kind of stuff. If you were to actually get all that into the package, yeah, I think this album would be one for the ages. But I I think the the issue that people had with the album is if you kind of look at early seventies solo Beatles, George did well out of the traps and. John and Ringo did well out of the traps because they kind of did what the audience expected of them. Paul yeah. faltered a little bit because he didn't do exactly what the audience expected of him. And this album might be the first time John doesn't give the audience what they want. Plus, it's also the first album where Yoko is front and centre as well. You could have parked Yoko when she was putting out her Plastic Ono band or her Fly 
album alongside Imagine, but now it's John and Yoko together, and I think those two things wound people up a little bit. Yes, I think that's that's not regarded as acceptable. You know, it's acceptable <laughs> if Yoko's doing her own album in parallel, but putting them together, and again, you think, well, that, that similar feeling when Double Fantasy came out, that, oh, it would have been, you know, why... Yeah. Why this and why why do it that way? We we want to hear John Lennon. Yes, but yeah, I think you're right. I think he's confounding expectations at this point. So let's let's look at the story. Look at the timeline in a wonderful bit of um, what would you say? I don't know. Cosmic alignment. John moves to New York on the 31st of August 1971, and one year later, on the 31st of August 72, he's doing his Madison Square Garden one to one concerts. So it's a 12-month period where he totally changes what he's about and how he, you know, he, he himself and Yoko tether themselves to New York City um, yes. and become identified and synonymous with the city. And they are certainly, in that first year that they are there, they are living in a very different way to the way they are living in 1980, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. It's a totally different type of existence. But they leave uh, the they move and leave on the 31st of August, 71, a Tuesday. Thanks for pointing that out. Uh, and it, it's initially a custody battle that they go to the, the, they go away for, isn't it? It is. So Yoko has a, has a daughter by her second husband, Tony Cox. And uh, uh, when she divorced Tony Cox, the divorce was finalised in the British Virgin Islands. The British Virgin Islands courts gave Yoko custody uh, of her daughter, but uh, the daughter has remained with Tony Cox. So they are there to try and chase Tony Cox down because the word is he's moved from the British Virgin Islands and he's now living in America. So the first idea is that they will go to America to find uh, and and get custody of Kyoko. There have been other things that we touched on before where they uh, tried to sort of, in inverted commas, kidnap Kyoko from a crash in Mallorca, mm-hmm. as you do. <laughs> so so there's, there is a background to this. There is an a, a antipathy here and there is a, a background to this. Um, so it, it seems initially to be a temporary thing. And their first day is they move into the St. Regis Hotel, which we've, we've mentioned before in previous episodes. And you, you say their temporary thing. Do we, yeah, we don't really know their intent as to whether they are ever going to go back to the UK or whether this is intended to be a permanent move. It, it, I think the assumption is it wasn't, nothing was permanent really in their lives at the time. I, I, I think that's fair comment that nothing is permanent. It, it becomes permanent because of, of the immigration status. If he leaves mm. the country, he can't get back in. If he leaves the country and can't get back in, they can't continue to pursue uh, the custody battle for Kyoko. So circumstances, I think, just conspire to make it permanent, but I don't think there's a, a, a sense I am moving to the States or I'm moving to New York and I will never be back or I'm going to make New York my home, you know, because it's quite a radical shift. They've been living in Tittenhurst, you know, well, so they, 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 yeah. they move from Rockstar Mansion to hotel and then ultimately they end up back in the Dakota. But, but it, so yeah, I don't think it's a permanent uh, intention is there at the time. But it is it is strange, as you say, that they, you know, Tittenhurst Park, another kind of place that's synonymous with them. They've only been in there for two years. They moved in August 69, August 71. They basically walk away and they never set foot in Tittenhurst Park or the UK 
ever again. And uh, yeah, at that point, the Imagine album isn't even out. That's not due out until September 71. So by the time Imagine comes out, they are never going to be in Tittenhurst no. ever again. It's it's so strange and, and, and final. But as you say, they, they initially move into the, the St. Regis Hotel. They've got three rooms there. And August 1971, it's the same month that George has done the concert for Bangladesh, just to get people's timelines um, in order. So August the 1st, he does his concerts for Bangladesh in Madison Square Garden. And a month later, John and Yoko are living in New York. And in a way that they weren't quite as accessible in the UK, although they did do lots of interviews, but they they basically opened the door straight away and say, we're in a hotel, come and interview us and chat to us and we'll tell you what you want to know. They're very... They kind of get stuck in. Yes, they they're, they're very accessible. So they they take three rooms in the St Regis Hotel, and they they effectively hold court there. You know, we we've talked before about interviews with Ray Connolly that they do there. They're filming some of their art pieces there, making films. Uh, this this process of documenting their lives that begins really, I suppose, with with Two Virgins and Ballad of John and Yoko, and and, and, yeah. and all the film that footage around Tittenhurst. This continues. And it's interesting that you, you mentioned Bangladesh and they've stepped into that. Uh, one of the interviews that they gave is very anti-George. Yeah. And you do have a sense that George has sort of upstaged John with Bangladesh. George is king of the world at this point and he is sort of putting... The, the sloganeering of power to the people and, and give peace a chance and that John does so well. George has sort of put this into concrete action, delivered this concert, and George is being fated as the, the number one Beatle with All Things Must Pass, the concert of Bangladesh and all the rest of it. And they, they some of the comments they say about George, that he's very narrow-minded. Uh, Yoko says, not sophisticated intellectually. And... Uh, <laughs> Very trendy, has all the right clothes, which I imagine is John's ultimate put down. Well, you have to wonder if some of this is also the personal layering in, if the story is true that John was invited to Bangladesh on the reason that he did not bring Yoko, that, um, you know, they're just getting the knife in, that John's choosing a side. There's, There's potentially a bit of that as well. But George is still in their orbit. He's still there. He is, he is. So uh, 6th of September, uh, George is, is hanging out uh, in, in the hotel. And they're, they're, the Imagine film, if you, if you remember, George yes. walks in with Yoko and Fred Astaire is there, uh, who insisted, Fred Astaire insisted on doing his pit several times to get, just to get the tick exactly right. Um, so yeah, so despite this, you know, George is still in their orbit and uh, happy, happy to turn up and uh, squire Yoko around the hotel room. And and Dick Cavett is also in that imagined film. He's another one of those people there. And John is and Yoko are appearing on the Dick Cavett show that that same week. Dick Cavett is um, he's still a fascinating man. He was kind of a New York liberal intellectual who had this fantastic talk show in the early seventies. He's still very active on Twitter. Very proud of the 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 kind of conversations that he was leading at the time. Yeah, well, it'd be great to get, you know, if Dick Cavett is listening, he definitely get Dick Cavett on, have a chat with him. Um, yes. Because it's a completely different style of talk show to what we're used to now, where people yes. are just coming on, plugging their album. You know, Dick Cavett is having long, in-depth, serious, political conversations with people. And um, mm. it's a very 
leisurely unfolding and uh yeah that would be that would be great um there's a fun fact yeah, about there's a fun fact do the fun fact <laughs> The fun fact, uh, well, oh, this is the clip that's used in Forrest Gump when Forrest Gump is yes. on the talk show with, with John and Yoko. The other fun fact I'll tell you about Dick Cavett is, you know, the Randy Newman song Rednecks? Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the last night I saw Lester Maddox on TV. The TV show they're talking about is the Dick Cavett show where Lester Maddox... I did not know There that. you go. Where Lester Maddox kind of is kind of, he's, he's kind of make, made fun of by this kind of elitist New York audience and he gets into a tough huff and, and and wanders off and uh, so Randy Newman uh, uh, put that into his song Rednecks which also features a word that um, uh, that we that we are avoiding today as well that song anyway um, so they hit the ground running in September 1971 they're in the St. Regis Hotel they are doing experimental movies which one are they doing this time Clock uh, Clock Clock what's Clock about do we do we know it's probably uh, it's, it's about a clock it's it's about a clock. There is a clock tick, ticking on the mantel shelf, as Ringo would say, and uh, they're just moving around the hotel. I mean, seriously, it's just you set a camera up in the hotel room and there's a clock ticking. And there are some songs and John's playing acoustic guitar, and but it's incredibly self-indulgent. I am shocked to hear that. Really? That's um, never been said before. Um the other thing that's interesting at this point in time is May Pang is, is is around as well. It's worth noting that she goes on to play a bigger role. But once they land in New York, um, is, is it that May Pang is based in New York working for APCO and she kind of becomes the de facto kind of a PA for John and Yoko? Yes. So she, she starts off as a sort of song plugger trying to get people to record songs that, uh, for which uh, her employers own the publishing. But then in 1970s, she began to work as the receptionist at ABCO. Um, she initially, she's asked to help. I imagine if you were you were there as a receptionist, she said, oh, uh, John and Yoko are doing this film. It's called Up Your Legs Forever. Could you uh, <laughs> get involved? I mean, anyway, she throws herself into gets the involved. task. Gets involved. Um, that was sort of in December 1970. And then eventually she's sort of asked to be John and Yoko's uh, secretary or general gopher, I suppose. And then she becomes their permanent personal assistant. Um, so, yeah, you can just park that piece of knowledge there, knowing what eventually uh, what eventually happens. One of the big things that happens is that Yoko has an art exhibition in Syracuse in, in upstate New York. And this is a big deal. This is a big deal. This is a big yes. deal for her. This is also a big deal for Paul. If you remember, we talked about this in his 2018 GQ interview, and he's talking about Alan Klein. He said, oh, Alan Klein arrived and promised he'd make us millions and he'd give Yoko a, 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 an exhibition at the Everson Museum in Syracuse, New York. And you think, no, no, he couldn't possibly have thought that back in 1969. But yes, this is Yoko getting a big prestigious uh, art exhibition has always been one of Klein's major selling points. I will get this. I will... I will yeah. uh, organise this for you. And essentially it's a retrospective going back 10 years, a show of unfinished paintings and sculpture. Yeah, and it's it, it's a big deal. It is, um, th- there's actually some YouTube footage of some of the performances from it, uh, I think called Free Time, which was not broadcast until the following May, is a kind of a, a recording made at Syracuse in October 1971, which features John and Yoko doing it, it features all that kind of experimental stuff that if you were a satirist or somebody, it, it's like all that, it's, it's that thing that people think of. It's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a cloud in a bucket or whatever it is, that uh, it, it's all there. 
there in this this free time show on YouTube. And John is a full on participant. Like it's 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 actually wonderful to see in a way because it's her show, and he is the subject for her to do whatever kind of art piece that she's uh, involved in at this time. Yes, I mean this is this is her show. And uh, the the one thing I like is there was a room devoted to water pieces, and uh, it was all done fairly short notice. So she has has to sort of get things to fill the rooms that she's been given, and she asked various people to donate things, and Phil Spector donate something. And uh, but uh, John produces a small fish tank containing a pink sponge, uh, and he called it Napoleon's bladder. That's a Goons reference to me. That sounds very like a Goons, you like Napoleon. Oh, really? Now you're well, the, you're the you're the Goons expert. Can you uh, place it? Napoleon's piano is is an episode of the Goon Show, and uh, but I just think Napoleon's. I can hear you know them doing that in in a peculiar Goons <laughs> voice, which I shall not attempt. The, it, this is the of course in the middle of October, 9th of October is John Lennon's birthday, and the previous year on John Lennon's birthday is the middle of recording Plastic Ono Band mm-hmm. um, where George Harrison comes in and plays It's Johnny's Birthday. Amazingly, how much happens in a year, one year later, they're in the middle of Syracuse. There's still supposed to be a John Lennon birthday party with Beatles involved. The, the, Everest, the director of the Everson Museum has this wonderful idea and gets uh, his assistant, David Ross, to start pulling together equipment and setting up a um, a, a stage basically, for a secret midnight concert with three of the Beatles at the theatre, which is part of the Everson uh, Museum. So this is a Beatles reunion. This is the first Beatles reunion post uh, uh, Bangladesh, you know, where, where that could have been a possible yeah. uh, reunion. So this is the second one. Paul declines <laughs> the invitation. George Harrison uh, can't make it. So... Uh, Ringo is there for the exhibition. Uh, exhibition. Phil Spector's there. Eric Clapton, Jim Keltner, Nicky Hopkins, Klaus Vorman, all the usual suspects. But the secret gets out, and uh, it's cancelled because people are, you know, milling around. Uh, so they all go back to a hotel room and have a bit of a jam instead. Uh, and this is Ringo, or sorry, this is John's thirty-first birthday. Just. To, just to remember how young he was at the time, old and man, good old, old Ring- man, old man, <laughs> good old Ringo for for turning up. It is, I don't know, I don't know what adjective you would use to say that. To think, if you couldn't get the Beatles together for a massive spectacular like Bangladesh, they'll definitely turn up to a small provincial theatre for a Yoko art exhibition. Yes, it, <laughs> it seems logical. It seems totally logical. The thing I did not know until we were getting ready to discuss this was that there is some footage around of John Lennon's 31st birthday party uh, in October 1971 in a Syracuse hotel room. That nothing is secret anymore. Nothing you can actually, secret. You can actually see what they were doing. And I have to admit, it looks boring. <laughs> it looks very, yes, it's, 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 it's not a party. It's not a party I think I would necessarily have wanted to be there, except to say I'd been in a room with these people. But uh, Like, it just looks like a student party. People sitting around it is. in very mundane, casual clothes. There's a guitar, there's some bootleg sound footage of them uh, riffing on songs, and they're kind of going through the old standards. Yeah, but you've, you've got John and Yoko, Klaus Vorman, Jim Keltner, Mal is there, good old Mal, Neil Aspinall, Eric Clapton, Ringo Starr, Alan Ginsberg, and and they they sort of run through yeah yeah I mean on top of old Smokey, 
good night, Irene. Mm. Take this hammer. He's got the whole world in his hands. Twist and shout, La Bamba. Bring it on home to me. Yesterday, yellow submarine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tandoori chicken. You know that song, Tandoori chicken? That, uh, that's a that's um, a George no. Harrison, Phil Spector co-write. Oh, yeah, that's a, the it's a Ronnie Spector song. Yes, and she says, uh, you know, I'm one of the very few people to have had four, all four of the Beatles play on one of my songs. Uh, and I think she's sort of conflating. She seems to think that all of the Beatles performed on this, but it was actually George and uh, Ringo. And I think she must be thinking, oh, yeah, well, did, did John sang that once or uh, anyway. Oh, yes, maybe. Uh, it's very strange. But interestingly, they do do Uncle Albert, uh, Admiral Halsley and My Sweet Lord. Well, these are, these are the songs that are in the ether. Obviously, Uncle Albert, Albert Admiral Halsey had been a, a number one single um, that summer in the US of A, so it was unavoidable. Um, and obviously, My Sweet Lord is the song of the times, and Imagine is about to hit the charts. Yes, but uh, for all that, the highlight is uh, mm-hmm. undoubtedly Allen Ginsberg uh, reciting William Blake's Nurse's Song. Great. All together now. Everybody, I don't know Nurse's song. I'm I'm sure it's not much fun. I I I can't imagine it's a toe tapper. Um, apparently, there might also be early versions of Attica State being grooved on or being jammed on at this time. Yes, so just yes. park that for um, for the sometime in New York City album. And uh, yeah, you can look all this up on YouTube. It's amusingly mundane. And uh, John sends Ringo a postcard afterwards. Um, to, to confirm, shall I read this out? Dear, dear, hello, Ringo and more Reen. Uh, thanks a lot for coming to my birthday, Chaos. Looks like some good things will come from the museum show too. Lots of love to you and yours from Bonnie, John and Yogurt. Hello, Maureen, Mrs. Lennon and her husband. That's the, that's the, that's very sweet that they're still it very sweet postcards. And, and they went to some, they, they kind of made a little collage on the postcard and uh, using an old... You can see it in, in Ringo's book, Postcards from the Boys. But you think if you were the postman and you saw you'd that... Pocket you, that you'd pocket that, you? pocket that. you just pocket that. I'm amazed. Well done, Royal Mail uh, or, yeah. the, or the US Postal Service uh, for not stealing the postcards that were whizzing back and forward around this time. <laughs> the other thing that happens in October is, you know, a the Regis Hotel is no place to... Um, plan a revolution or whatever it is they want to do. So they actually do find their first permanent residence in New York, which is not the Upper West Side where they end up, but down in Greenwich Village. In Greenwich Village, 105 Bank Street. And the uh, fun fact here is their landlord was Joe Butler. Joe Butler, the drummer from The Loving Spoonful. Uh, uh, you got to have a pension plan. I was going to say branched out into property investment. Good old Joe. Um, yep. So yeah, there, there are some great photographs of this and it seems very tiny and they're just sort of living in a bed, on a bed. Uh, there's a spiral staircase that goes up to a roof garden. And uh, John always made great play of the fact that they were able to just wander around and nobody bugged them and nobody hassled them. And um, all, all was well. And uh, when I say nobody bugged them, obviously the FBI were trying to bug <laughs> them. But, uh, I see what you did there. Yes, they were trying to bug them. Well, it is around this time that the FBI start to take an interest in John and Yoko. And, you know, it is it is October 1971 and leading the FBI is still J. Edgar Hoover. The FBI had been started in 1935. He is currently 71 years of age at this time, J. Edgar Hoover. And he decides that John and Yoko need to have a file opened on them. Was he still wearing dresses at this point? 
J. Edgar Hoover. This 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 can neither be confirmed nor denied, but it it does seem like you, you kind of think that the gap from 1935 when he became FBI head to 1971 seems like a a huge gap or a huge chasm in time and change. It's a lifetime. It's an mm. absolute lifetime. And you think he's bringing the values of 1935 to 1971. And like comparatively, it would be like somebody running the FBI today who had started running the FBI in 1985. That seems less like a long period of time, but maybe I'm totally wrong. It I, does, I it does. Well, if you, think, if you think about the changes in women's fashion and corsetry between 1935 and 1971. <laughs> I think about that a lot. J. Edgar, J. Edgar was, 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 you know, he, his corsetry and... Political opinions and views had not moved with the times. I don't think he's he's no longer with us. He can't sue. He can't sue me for that. But apparently, the FBI couldn't really. They thought that uh, the the Saint Regis Hotel was at 150 Bank Street, Greenwich Village. So they 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 couldn't really get get it lined up correctly. It's it's an absolute for all of the sort of serious undertones of of kind of the secret police state, the incompetence of yeah. the FBI, not, you know, St. Regis Hotel at 105 Bank Street. And no one sort of, they're, so they're running up and down Bank Street looking for a swanky hotel, not a, a uh, you know, an apartment. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it is it is crazy. And that that's the sort of thing that will recur time and again that the FBI, you, you know, not uh, 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 just, just, I say in, incompetence, um, but they were they 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 burgled at one night one point. Well, that that's the thing, you know. It's 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 the, the, John and Yoko kind of have a thing of liking to be very open to the world, but then a former tenant bursts in one night and just starts taking stuff. Yes, so artwork, TV, Lennon's wallet, but also his address book. And again, you think it's it's that's such a quaint idea that you have everybody's yeah. number written in a in a book. Um, you know, in twenty twenty two, that seems. Ludicrous. Well, you just keep it in the cloud, wouldn't you? And uh, so, yeah, he he had to put the word out on the street to say, "I need I need my address book back. I don't have Ringo's number. How am I going to get in touch with Paul?" And he <laughs> says, "You know, if this doesn't come back, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the Black Panthers on the case." Which again, yeah. <sighs> John, it's a very so, very, uh, very 1971 phrase. Uh, so anyway, uh, it it. Um, it is returned uh, to them. And they, they stay there until uh, early 1973 when they moved to the Dakota. And there's lots of people visiting them there. So you have the there in the, the milieu of people like Jerry Rubin, Allen Ginsberg, Peter Boyle, the actor, who's also a, an activist, and Bobby Seale from the Black Panthers. So they're running this kind of open house. It's a very... Um, you know, I, yeah. it's of a certain ilk. It's it is not, of a, um, it is of a certain ilk. There's not people ilk. from the Nixon campaign visiting it's as well. It, it definitely isn't. And I mean, I, I like to think they moved to St. Regis Hotel just to try and, Alan Ginsberg knows where we are. We should, we should move. Uh, but then he'd, <laughs> he'd, he'd, be, he'd be around here reciting William Blake again. So yeah, so they're, they're, they're hanging out with, uh, with, with, with these people, these shakers and movers in New York. And this is where I really think the, the sort of attack they start to embed themselves in New York through through these yes. uh, through these people, and moving on to October, he, John Stovey giving interviews. So the David Wig interview from the Beatles tape LP is twenty uh, fifth October seventy one, and then they make their first recording, their first New York City recording, which I think is kind of a border between mm. everything that came before and everything that kind of comes afterwards. And the song they record in New York is "Happy Christmas, War Is Over." Yeah, and 
you know, Imagine has come out in previous weeks, so it's kind of going up the charts, the Imagine album and song. Um, this is the kind of the first thing they record after that. And depending on how you look at, you know, I think sometimes Happy Christmas War is over. It sits kind of in the Imagine side of things, not in the sometime in New York City side of things. I think that's right. It it, it follows the Imagine song, I think. It, it's part of that sloganeering, everybody good time, feeling good. But actually, th- there's a side to the song. At the beginning, they say, you know, Happy Christmas, Julian, Happy Christmas, Kyoko. They just mm-hmm. kind of whisper this. And some, sometimes that's cut off in some of the versions that it appears on in various uh, mixes. But again, it, it just brings home it is the background to this is they're still trying to find Yoko's, um, uh, Yoko's daughter. But it is yep. an American production and it does have a slightly different sound for all that Phil Spector has previously been involved uh, with Plastic Owner Band and, and Imagine this is different and I don't know whether it's a different studio uh, the fact that they've got sort of a choir in or, or, or what have you but um, there is a slightly different sound to it and I think you're right it is a, it is a sort of transitional uh, song between Plastic Owner Band Imagine and then sometime in New York City on the other side. And uh, Yoko, yeah. I, I like Yoko's B-side, Listen, the wind is falling. The, sorry, Listen, the snow is falling. Um, yeah, that's that's great too. And I think, yeah, it, 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 Happy Christmas, the, the, the tune is obviously lifted from Stewball, the, um, <laughs> the, the, the classic composition, um, Trad R about a racehorse, which is something I didn't realise till a few years ago. And um, when you hear Stewball, you think this is quite amusing that John has just lifted this tune, Lock, Stock and Barrel, into this yeah. standard. Yeah, so there's a couple of different arrangements of that song. There's the Hollies, I think, do a version, and there's Joan Baez does a version. But but yes, yeah. it's such, a, such an obvious lift. I'm surprised that nobody called him out at the time, but I suppose Mr. Trad R was no longer around to sue. Mr. Tradar is not signed up to Alan Klein or anybody similar, so you can just do whatever you want with Tradar. But yeah, I, I, I think Happy Christmas kind of is that balance between a pop song, imagine, versus a message song, uh, a near hectoring song. It kind of gets that balance just right. So it does kind of work as seeing how John was expressing himself at this point in time. And as we will see, Happy Christmas War is over. It does get Rush released in the US. It does not reach, it does not get a release in 1971 for Christmas 1971 in the UK. It doesn't come out till Christmas 1972 for ATV, Lou Grade, all sorts of reasons, time pressures and all the rest. Yes, there's there's particularly the publishing dispute. So this is again, suddenly Paul is writing with Linda, John is writing with Yoko. 50% of the royalties are not uh, going anywhere near Northern Songs ATV. And this, this leads to uh, litigation. Did you mention Paul as in Paul McCartney? Yes, we haven't mentioned Paul really, but yes, Paul, Paul is... Uh, Paul, what's he, uh, what's he up to? Paul is giving interviews uh, and in November, Paul gives an interview to Melody Maker. And this is, this is a, one day we'll just do an episode <laughs> where we just read out uh, the This does read like these. a radio play. It's it, quite- it, really, it really does. So... Basically, Paul sits down. He recorded an interview on the 11th of November 1971 with Chris Charlesworth. Basically, the interview is about Alan Klein, about the publishing, about, uh, you, you know, the tax, about how to to break up the Beatles and um, about Bangladesh. And, you know, I've kind of got the notes here of the interview. It goes on pages and pages and pages. 
But basically, it's all, you know, Paul saying, John is constantly saying, oh, Alan Klein is great. He got George to number one. Look at the Bangladesh concert. You know, you can have this, you can have that. And there's a great quote, and it's that Paul says, and the thing is, of course, you know that when you've got a daddy, it's nice. If you're a little bit sort of worried as to what to do next, and your daddy says, what are you worried about? Hey, John, what do you want, son? Do you want a house? You've got it. And it absolutely skewers John's daddy fixation, the Epstein, Maharishi, Klein. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a remarkably personal attack on yeah. John. And it's not just, you know, John is a terrible person. It's absolutely skewering the heart of John's insecurities. It is brutal. And, you know, the Vogue at the time in the music press was maybe to have longer, very open, um, very truthful um, interview styles. And there's parts of this that kind of, you know, Paul certainly would never do an interview like this today. No. And he's, he's giving it some, you know, John Lennon and Rolling Stone kind of vibes where he's letting his mouth fly and saying how he really feels. Um, but it is part of it, yeah, it. It is brutal in parts. And, you know, there's some really telling words, you know. Um, you know, there's one bit where he's saying, you know, Klein told the other three Beatles, I'm trying to get control of the company, Apple and everything. Klein keeps saying, Paul's trying to get the song publishing and all those kind of little red herrings everywhere. Now, there is a version of events, as we have discussed before, where you could argue Paul was trying to get the song yes. publishing. But, you know, I do believe that Paul was working for the greater good. But then he goes on to say, you know, I happen to know that the Eastmans are just more moral than Klein. And that's quite a word. That obviously is something that's really important to him. I think you could argue that John and George, maybe to a lesser degree, Ringo, don't mind having a, for want of a better term, a bastard in their corner. But Paul actually believes that that's not the way to get things done. And to use a word like moral and morality and all that kind of yeah. stuff is very telling. Yes, I mean, this is, this is it is, I think, a very revealing interview. Um, and he, he veers between, you know, saying that kind of comment about John and then he says, you know, my problem is I, I'm just not forthright enough. I just don't really say what I think and I should just say what I think. But he's just skewered John. And then he talks about the Eastmans are just more moral and then he goes on to explain what he means by that, which is, um, you know, the Eastmans just get paid a fee. They don't bother with other fees. Just pay a fee. I just pay a fee because I don't like having everything in a sack. I'm not into them for anything. So he, it, it then swings back to this idea that, a lot, you know, Paul and money and not wanting to pay and why not take 15% and querying what Epstein was going to take. And that, uh, so, so it, it's very revealing and, um, he, he, he goes right back and, and, and reviews the Northern Songs issues and the first meetings and all the rest of it. Then uh, he said, um, you know, John said, you know, Klein says, I'm going to make the Beatles bigger than they've ever been. But all I have to say, as far as I'm concerned, he's never really come up with that. But he did, Paul. We, we did this before. He kind of, you know, uh, increased your income exponentially. Mm. And then he talks about Bangladesh and said, I might easily have done it. I might have done it. The fact of the matter is Klein was in there. And the reason why I couldn't do it was because if I go do it, then I'm supporting Klein. He's organizing the contract. And all he has to do is put a little picture with the Beatles and Billboard next week, you know. So it is impossible to think of him doing this kind of uh, interview 
now. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 very striking, and he's 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 what you kind of see from Paul here is he's keeping receipts. He's he's remembering what's happened. I I, I and he certainly has a very kind of strong memory of what's gone down in 1969. I can't imagine John or George. Well, obviously they would have a different side to the story, but I don't know what they'd be as lucid on some of the fine print or the details as, as Paul kind of shows himself to be here. He, he is across a lot of that, but one of, the, one of the things you have to remember about this interview is he knows this interview is going to be in the paper. Everybody at this stage is trying to win a PR battle. Paul in particular, I think, knows he is on the wrong side of, of, of public opinion. He is being cast as the guy who broke up the Beatles. And whilst he does recount a lot of the, 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 the detail, uh, you know, some of it has a little bit of a spin to it. So, Oh, yeah. He definitely has a side. In yeah, a, I mean, he, t- he, he talks about the Let It Be album, and um, he said, uh, I was told to sign a new contract just after we've been told we're not going to play together again. And I said, well, isn't that a bit silly? And Klein said, it doesn't make any difference. You get a new royalty. If you don't do any more stuff, you still get more royalties than you've made ever. Now, what I didn't realize was, yeah, that was all true, but you'd have to sign yourself up again. And, but he did sign up. He did sign. Yeah. He did sign the contract in September '69. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it's it's you can see him sort of swinging back and forward in this interview, and a lot of it is clearly written, knowing that John will read it. He's this is a point where they, uh, Paul and John, really are just using the music press to communicate. There, there, there seems to be no communication directly between the two of them, and they're just batting. The letters back and forward and giving interviews back and forth. The music press must have loved this. Well, yeah, it sells a lot of papers. I mean, John does read it and he does fire off a letter to Melody Maker on November the 24th, 71, which is published in the uh, Melody Maker of December December the 4th, 71. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the main letter doesn't seem to exist anymore. It seems to have been edited for publication, but John is livid, I suppose. Yes, I mean, Melody Maker's editors write back to him and say, we, we're taking some of this, we can't publish this. Nine lines of the letter are excised for publication. So we, we can't, we don't know what was in there, but, but we do have a reply. You know, so Melody Maker write to John and say, we're, we're editing this. And then he writes back to, to Melody Maker in, in response to that letter. But the original letter is, is lost. And uh, Hunter Davies tried to find the correspondence in, in 2012 for his book, The John Lennon Letters, but it couldn't, couldn't be found. But he writes, uh, John replies saying, you may be interested to know that Lou Grade in Northern Songs is preventing Happy Christmas, uh, back with Listen the Snow is Falling coming out in England at all. It will be released everywhere else in the world but England. It's a fucking shame. P.S. <laughs> what was libel about saying Paul was camp? PPS, the letter was done very tastefully. Thank you, John and Yoko. And you think, that's, that's, what, what did he say? What did he say? What did he say? He called Paul Camp, which is an odd, that, that, that might have been a bit of a code at the time or a slur at the time. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's doing neither of them any favours. And, you know, I, I, 
Do you want to pick a fight with John Lennon in public? Really? This is you, the thing. You know, he's 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 gonna and I think, fight dirty. <laughs> yeah, and I think they I think they realize this because this is we talked about this on the Ram episode. So this is around the time when they they will meet and they will decide and agree to stop the public. Yes, uh, sort of recriminations in the backward and forward. So so that that will that will stop around this uh, point. So we're still coming in towards the end of 1971. Uh, the Raga film is premiered in uh, November 23rd. George is involved in that film with Ravi Shankar. And George says John and Yoko are at the premiere. Is that, I, we're not really sure whether that's I, true I don't, or not. I'm not sure that that's true or not. Uh, mm. I, I don't know. Um, and then, as we said, Happy Christmas War's Over with uh, Listen to the Snows Falling uh, comes out on the 1st of December in the US. But it's also at this point in time that the network that John has been putting around himself since he arrived in New York on the 31st of August start to pull kind of John into this orbit of events that will more directly inform the topics and the tone of the album, the eventual album sometime in New York City. End of part one. Intermission. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. End of intermission. Part two. Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman um, decide that they're going to get John uh, to appear at a rally for uh, John Sinclair. What's the story of John Sinclair? Story as if, of, well, as you, if you, the story hasn't told us. <laughs> you just need, you just need to listen to the, song the uh, us, listen yes. listen to the song. So essentially, he is a, a poet, a writer, political activist. He's from Flint. Michigan, he's making a name for himself as a poet in the mid-60s, but then he takes on the role of manager for the MC5. Yeah, kick out the jams. Kick out the jams, mothers, oh, bro- man, brothers this, this. and sisters. This is this is going to be a very problematic. Uh, have you this ever heard, a very have explicit you, podcast. Have you heard that album? There's two versions, yes, of, that album, two versions of that album where they, they, they uh, kick out the jams, brothers and sisters, and they very bad edit. Anyway, um, so 1968, he's still working with the MC5, he serves as a founding member of the White Panther Party, mm-hmm. uh, uh, an anti-racist uh, sort of left-wing group, counterpart of the Black Panthers. He is arrested for possession of marijuana in 1969. He has two joints uh, in mm-hmm. his possession, and he is sentenced to 10 years in prison. And, they gave him uh, 10 for two. That's, what that's, about. that's exactly it. That's exactly it. Mm. It's like having John Lennon in the room. It was um, just great, beautiful. Th- this becomes a kind of 
cause celebre and, and a kind of focus uh, for protest. And perhaps most famously, apart from the song, uh, Abby Hoffman jumps on stage um, <laughs> yes. at Woodstock. <laughs> With the Who, and this is this is if you if you have the the Who box set, thirty years, thirty years of maximum R and B. This starts the box set. You hear Hoffman kind of shout something, and uh, before he gets clobbered by Pete Townsend, who get off my stage. So it's very funny. He, he says, you know, while John Sinclair is rotting in prison, and you just hear Pete Townsend go, "Get off my effing stage!" Clang, and he's thrown forward off the lip of the stage. It's uh, it is amusing. It is amusing. Here we can sit here in our you know twenty uh, first century, where where you know thought of getting ten years in prison for marijuana is just ridiculous. You know, well, we live in such I mean, we like, live in such liberal times. <laughs> it's worth saying that John Sinclair is still alive. He lives in Amsterdam. He's eighty-one years of age, and it's a good, um, good, good, good ad. Good, you know, good ad for uh, marijuana. The, yeah, a, a long life with with marijuana. And in the last month, there's been a presidential edict in the U.S. to decriminalize and you know give amnesty to people with similar. Uh, convictions, which is a curious uh, evolution of the times, we would say. Um, so, yeah, it, there's this high-profile protest, and it's, as we said, Jerry Rubin and A.B. Hoffman who managed to convince John and Yoko to fly to the John Sinclair Rally, which is in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and they fly up on the 9th of December for the, the rally on the, the, the 10th. And it's all, all, all the famous protest people are there. John meets Phil Oakes. Yes, Phil Oakes is there. He's a he's a curious guy. Phil Oakes is the kind of guy who, you know, needs a you know a film festival documentary about him, where people are like, this guy that everyone's forgotten about had this extraordinary Zelig like career, where he's in and out of all of these hot topics. He's fraternising with Dylan and John and Yoko, and has a very sad ending. Very sad ending. But he is incredibly uh, kind of. In influential in the early sixties, in particular, so he he's he's a peer of Dylan back then, and you know Dylan at one point says, "I just can't keep up with Phil. He just keeps getting better and better and better." By nineteen sixty six, when Dylan has gone electric, uh, Oakes criticizes uh, one of us must know sooner or later. One of us must know, and Dylan physically throws him out of a limousine saying, you're not a folk singer, you're a journalist. And ouch. The, <laughs> ouch. But the, the irony, that is exactly, you're just a journalist. That's exactly the criticism that was levelled at Lennon for some time in New York City. Yeah. This, is, this, isn't, this isn't music, this isn't pop music, this is just journalism. But anyway, they get together and there is a recording of uh, a song called Chords of Fame uh, performed by Phil Oaks for... John Lennon and and uh, the, the, there's some talk about this and uh, chatting beforehand and they they start talking about uh, you know how you can lift melodies from folk music and uh, you mm. know it's constant and you think John is intrigued by this and you think you're not intrigued by this you've just done this with Stewball and and it's <laughs> racing up the charts <laughs> you know it's it's a it's a very it's it's a very sweet kind of conversation it, again like all these things it's on YouTube where John is kind of probing Phil Oaks for oh, what you do and how does the how does the Tradar form work and how many verses should I write oh I see and Phil Oaks is kind of generously explaining what's you know how you just take from one generation of songs and pass it on to the next generation of songs and John is kind of taking it all in before Phil Oaks um, 
does this song uh, Chords of Fame for John, performs that for John. Yes, and it, you, you, you mentioned that sort of Phil Oaks did, you know, had a, had a sort of a tragic end uh, to, to mm. his life. He's sort of more like Joan Baez, I suppose. He's like that sort of permanently an activist and he doesn't yes. like, uh, sort of move away from that, that style. In 1973, he organises a concert to raise awareness about uh, the, the Allende government in, in Chile and Dylan comes along and, and performs at that. So you've got Pete Seeger, Arlo Guthrie, Dave Van Ronk. Dylan comes on board because the tickets aren't selling and Dylan is the draw. They discuss the possibility of going on tour together. Nothing happens, but that leads to the Rolling Thunder review. Yes. And one of the sort of interesting little postscripts is, you know, the Vietnam War officially ends April 30th, 1975. Oaks plans a rally in Central Park in May of that year called War Is Over. But that's John's slogan. Phrase. Yeah. You know, it's in Central Park. Who turns up? For this, Harry Belafonte, Odetta, Pete Seeger, Paul Simon, Joan Baez, no John Lennon. Yeah, he was around. They're using his slogan. It's literally at the end of the garden uh, of the Dakota. Uh, There's 100,000 people there. He cannot have been unaware uh, of this. This is April, May 1975. He's not started learning how to bake bread yet. He could easily have, um, but interestingly, it's pre the granting of the green card. So yes. he's not going to... And and he's not, yeah, he's not going to rock the boat. No. And he, you could argue Yoko is pregnant and he is yeah. starting his hibernation at around uh, this time. Yes, and, and sadly, um, Phil Oakes uh, in 1976 was diagnosed uh, as di- bipolar and um, died by suicide later that year. He's It's an extraordinary life. And again, somebody who I think is worthy of a bit more attention because um, it's a, a fascinating story. Um, getting back to the rally itself, um, who's there? John and Yoko are there, uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, Phil Oaks, as you said, uh, Bob Seeger, Alan Ginsberg, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. Um, uh, and also David Peel, who we'll come back to in a few minutes. The <laughs> There's no beginning to his talents, David Peel. And um, they, John and Yoko perform four songs. And if anybody kind of needed a bit of a, a light shone on where John and Yoko's heads were at three months after the release of the Imagine album. Uh, what songs do they perform? They perform Attica State about a prison riot, mm-hmm. The Luck of the Irish about the luck of the Irish, Sisters O' Sisters, mm-hmm. a feminist song, and John Sinclair about uh, John Sinclair. <laughs> and uh, John apparently announces, we're playing acoustic tonight. You might call us the Quarrymen. That's very nice. That's lovely. And it, I think that means that officially, in addition to all, you know, Colin Hanson, et cetera, et cetera, Yoko. <laughs> Yoko is one of the Yoko Quarrymen. Yoko was a Quarryman. That is, I'd never thought of it that way before. That is very, that's very, that's canon. Um, there's a short film made called Ten for Two. Um, after the rally, so it was filmed. Mm. And there is an effect, because three days after the rally, John Sinclair walks free from prison. Yes, yes, they they, yeah. they, they let him out. And the uh, Michigan Supreme Court ru- ruled that the state's marijuana laws were unconstitutional. And uh, even today, they have a pro-legalisation hash-bash rally. We should, we should do that. 
and nobody ever went to prison for marijuana again and we never needed to hear the song John Sinclair ever again. It was Except wonderful. we did. Except we did. Yes, this is interesting because it was a very specific protest song and by the time it, actually he's doing it in the studio, John Sinclair is out. Uh, it, you know, all is well with the world. And, yeah. um, but you can't throw away a good tune, you know. You can't throw away a good tune and uh, it has a little bit of an afterlife because I know people like yeah. people like the legal stuff. The United States versus the U.S. <laughs> District Court uh, in 1972, yes. on appeal to the Supreme Court, the court rendered a decision as if this was necessary, saying, we will prohibit the U.S. government's use of domestic electronic surveillance without a warrant and uh, let John Sinclair and his co-defendants officially off the hook. Well, that's more innocent times when you weren't allowed to electronically surveil your, your population. And, you of know? Co- and of course, uh, electronic surveillance, again, Went away and never went came away back. and never came yes. back. Disappeared throughout <laughs> the land. So uh, yeah. So there is there's petrol in John and Yoko's uh, tank right now for 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 the next phase John and Yoko experiment. So on the 16th of December, um, just a few days after the the Johnson Claire rally on the 10th, uh, John and Yoko along with David Peel appear on uh, David Frost's US talk show. And this is a fascinating piece of television. If people haven't seen it, again, the whole thing is up there. You know where to look. And if there was ever to be a sometime in New York City box set, you would hope that they might be able to even include the video of this hour long of television. And it is fascinating for a number of reasons. One is it's a type of television show you don't really see anymore. Certainly long form contentious debate these days. If you want to find it, you'll find it in whatever corner of the internet you've been algorithmed to get to. Um, Whereas something mainstream like this is very striking. But let's start with David Peel and how awful he is. He is your favourite, you know, possibly second only to Shanana in your hierarchy of great... (laughs) <clears throat> great, yes. great early yes. 70s bands. Yes, David Peel is... David Peel has had a record career for some years before uh, he, he appears on The Frost Show. So in 1968, he's contracted by Elektra. To be fair, in 1968, I think Elektra were signing everybody. Anyone. You know, we could have yeah. got a record deal in 1968. I think so. Record. Spoken word albums. Uh, so his, his album, Have a Marijuana peaked at 186 on the Billboard chart. <laughs> and he is sort of rediscovered by John Lennon. And you can see that John just thinks he is one of those fascinating, amusing New York, you know, counterculture types. And you, you get a sense that he's almost, uh, you know, the jester in the court of John yep. and Yoko at this, at this time. But anyway, John produces an album for Apple. It's only released on Apple in, in, in the US called The Pope Smokes Dope Every Day. Mm. I, 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 think, I think the Pope he was talking to is no longer with us, so that's probably, we can, we can say that. Yeah, um, you, yes. Now, I, I have to use this point in the podcast to correct something I said on a different podcast. Because oh, okay. I, I said on the, uh, is it rolling uh, Bob podcast, um, very good podcast. Go and listen to that, but not my episode. Yes, I said that John Lennon never met Bob Dylan post uh, that sort of Tittenhurst post Isle of Wight, but that is not true. Bob Dylan turns up at the David Peel sessions. Um, doesn't oh, really? Con- yeah, doesn't contribute. And the other thing was, but John did go to see Dylan and the band in 1974. So I'd like to apologise to all. 
of the uh, uh, people who listen uh, to it the, rolling is it rolling Bob and uh, you know they've been forwarding the hate mail and I apo- <laughs> I can only apologize we'll have to recall that episode because I mean if there's any group of fans who are who have their sleeves rolled up more than Beatle fans it's, it's Bob fans it, you're absolutely right I don't want to get the wrong side of, of the Bob cat oh god no yeah uh, the Bobcats. Uh, yeah, so if you're watching the David Frost show on the 16th of December 1971, um, you know, David Frost in his... I, I still can't help but think of Eric Idle every time I see David Frost doing his unctuous presentation thing. But he's like, we've got a great show for you today. John and Yoko are here. David Peel. Um, and everyone's like, who? What? <laughs> and, you know, and some great controversy and chat. So they come out and the show starts. And... The, the the first thing that people see is basically David Peel doing the Ballad of New York, this song, with John and Yoko in the background. John head down a bit on a kind of a tea chest bass and Yoko on a bongo. And David Peel, who looks like a sort of a hippie Donald Fagan character, but whose voice only a mother could love as he sort of draws this very dull diatribe about New York and he mentions John and Yoko and the camera cuts to John and Yoko and the audience goes hooray and you're like what 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 is you know what is what is this what is happening here it's skiffle it's skiffle it's John it is, is a it, form it, of skiffle John, yeah John you, you know 10 years after the uh, 12 14 years after the event uh, John is introducing skiffle uh, to America uh, you know playing his tea chest ba- bass and, and and what have you but it is it's shockingly bad and it is difficult to see what John sees in this uh you know he i think he just thinks he's amusing and it, it's just an indulgence and john's got a record label so yeah it, it's uh, i mean if I, I, i'm not trying to get into a, a john and paul divide here but you know musically something like getting involved with david peel doesn't really have a a musical quality that is worthy of you know the art form, I suppose. So, so, so it seems that John is putting the the message ahead of the music per se. That the the people he's surrounding with and the things he's trying to say, which I'm not saying aren't there isn't validity to some of them or all of them, but um, that is taking front and center as opposed to saying I'm also going to do it by working with the best musicians or the best singers and players. That's not the case. Whereas, you know, somebody like David Peel, if they were in Paul's orbit, Paul would have been like, yeah, thanks. Okay, bye. Yeah. (laughs) You can't carry a tune. I think it's an element of this idea that John has and that Yoko sort of encourages that, you know, the artist is the art and that you don't have to have training. You don't have to be able to sing. You don't have to be able to paint that everything that everything that everybody does is equally valid um and that that informs so much of what john and yoko have been doing you know in terms of documenting their life and everything every little thing that they do is art and is worthy of attention and it's almost easy sort of uh, directing that to somebody else well look here is somebody that has no talent uh that has no voice has no musical ability but hey you know he well he's he's on the david frost program and he's got john lennon as his Bass yeah. player, so you you could be like this too, guys. If you uh, <laughs> con John Lennon into giving you a record deal, 
Uh, and throughout the hour of the show, they play the same four songs that they sang at the John Sinclair rally. By the way, we should point out this show doesn't go out live. It doesn't go out actually until a month later in January 72. Um, but uh, Attica State, look at the Irish sisters, oh sisters and John Sinclair. Now, when they sing Attica State up front, they kind of come to the front of the stage, the apron of the stage. They sing the song. And at the end of it, there's a cohort of the audience who are quite vexed that yes. John has sung a song seemingly only having sympathy for prisoners and, you know, there's a there's a, a lady and a gentleman in the audience who come down the front and are like, you know, they were in prison for a reason and, you know, you can't. And John is trying to say, no, I'm saying, I'm apologising for the prisoners and the prison guards and all the people who died in, in the Attica State riot. And there's this kind of back and forth and John is in his full-on belligerent mode. Yoko's a bit more conciliatory. But again, you're watching this going... You know, in what in what kind of universe is a pop star in twenty twenty two having an argument about a prison riot with? Her? Yeah, I'd, I'd I'd like to see Lewis Capaldi come on and uh, discuss heated, heated issues of the day. You know, but this is I say you don't get that. Like I say, Lewis Capaldi. I just happened to switch on the television last night, and and he was on the Jonathan Ross show, and I thought it, yes. it's just a celebrity loving. No offence to yeah. Lewis Capaldi. Uh, Lewis Capaldi. I mean, yeah, don't get me started. Anyway, but no, I, it, it's a very, it, it obviously feeds to the time where the rock stars had something to say. Whereas nowadays, I guess you could argue we have, you know, the technocrats are the yeah. people who are putting out tweets that are trying to shift the geopolitical debate. Perhaps I don't want to go into, I don't want to go all you know, Joe Rogan here. <laughs> Nothing is real. <laughs> John, John takes this very badly. You know, he does not well, like... He gets, he, he, gets, he gets really angry. He does not like being challenged like this. He does not like being yeah. misunderstood as he sees it. I mean, there are some of these arguments that he is making that are carried through through to the modern day. And certainly at that point in time, the early 70s, and I'm speaking in very general political terms, there had been a shift towards um, jail time. There'd been, a, I think, mm. in the 1960s, there'd been a dismantling of kind of... Um, federal mental mental health care and so the prison populations had grown in the early 70s they've certainly grown a lot more in the in the US in the intervening 50 years so he was trying to get on board with the point of trying to say that prison isn't always the best place for all people I think that's generally what he was trying to say that you know we need to look at rehabilitation and why would you put someone like John Sinclair in next door to somebody who's been you know a, a mass murderer and you know, there is an argument and a discussion to be had there, but it, it basically turned into a, a shouting match. And yeah, John kind of starts to withdraw from the show. Yes. Yeah, so the second half, he's just, he, he's, he's disappears. He's, he's sort of, Yoko, yeah. Yoko is just sort of left to field the questions. Well, it, she's the, she's the sole interviewer for the back end of the show yeah. with David Frost and Frost obviously thinking on his feet is kind of giving a very reasonable conciliatory interview to, to Yoko. Um, but it's very strange. And it, it, again, it, it's, very telling about uh, John's personality that when challenged in that way, he just, mm. you know, if you don't understand him, the reason why you don't like my music is you don't understand it. You know, it's that teenage, yeah. you know, you just, and it's a very adolescent response for someone who is projecting himself. You know, he was the man of the decade. He was the spokesman for the peace uh, movement. And then he just, this very slightly petulant um uh, response and then he 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 won't come out at the end for the for the for the final buy either. Yes, uh, you know, but he's he's talking about things in a very sort of febrile atmosphere. The Attica State riot, and we we maybe come on to that when we talk about the song. Yep. was was incredibly emotive, and it was a raw topic, and he's addressing it in 
quite a clumsy way, and you know it's a clumsy thing that you're doing if it cannot be understood. If your if your purpose cannot be understood, then you you should realise you you're, you're not articulating this uh, with sufficient nuance or sophistication. I think nuance is the word, and that's perhaps you know the the problem that you run up against with when you listen to some time in New York City from start to finish is that there's no space for no. discussion or to try and bring people around. And, and and John kind of falls back on this thing, well, you know, I'm just a reporter, man. I'm just telling you the news kind of thing. And you're like, eh, I, yeah. I, I don't think you're unbiased. And I don't think, you know, you know there, there might be an agenda here. Um, but, you know, this is the, the, the sea he has chosen to swim in at this point in time. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You've either got faith or you've got unbelief and there ain't no neutral ground. <laughs> Ooh, heavy. Bob, Bob Dylan said that. Oh, anyway, sorry. Okay. Um, I, th- I thought I thought you were thinking. Oh, you think I was thinking of my feet there? No, 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 no. It's like whoa. Um, they still have one more benefit in them before the end of the year. The following day, after recording David Frost, they are at the Apollo Theatre doing a benefit for um, families and victims of the Attica Prison riot, and they do acoustic versions of Imagine, Attica State, and Sisters. Oh, Sisters, and some of the usual people are around: Jerry Rubin and. Bobby Seale, uh, but also Chuck Berry is there. Which Chuck is Berry is there. Yeah, that'd be good. John will always say, and Yoko will say, you know, how warmly received they were uh, uh, at, at the Apollo Theatre in Harlem. Um, because, you, you know, most of the victims of, of, of the Attica State uh, riot are black and, you know, they're aligning. Yeah. But, but, but the thing is, they are aligning themselves very publicly here with Bobby Seale, Black Panthers, Jerry Rubin, all of these people are on Richard Nixon's master list of uh, enemies of the yep. people. So and, and, and so they're very upfront uh, and very publicly aligning with a certain section of political opinion. And, and it's worth keeping in mind the whole reason why they went to the US, because the next day they uh, fly to Texas for a custody hearing um, with Tony Cox, uh, Yoko's first husband. And he, he ends up in jail. He ends up in jail. So the backstory to this is that they had previously, early in December, they went to, to Texas to meet with Tony Cox, who, who at that point was sort of part of a, a sort of Christian cult organization. There's a meeting arranged. He refuses to turn up unless he has his minister, his reverend with him. They declined to to meet him in those terms. They go back to New York. They issue proceedings. Uh, a warrant is issued against Tony Cox for not producing Kyoko. Uh, sort of, a, I suppose, it's in the nature of a contempt of court. He gets jailed for five days. His lawyer gets him out after uh, 24 hours. Go lawyers. Uh, <laughs> Cox then flees with Kyoko. Mm. And uh, so this is 18th of December, 1971. And Yoko will next see her daughter in 1997. It's it's very sad and shocking. And we know now that um, Sean Lennon and Kyoko have a good relationship and they've posted pictures of themselves hanging out on, on social media. But yeah, I think um, the, the plight of Yoko and Kyoko is something that's often overlooked in the ballad of Yoko, and it's it's a very sad, horrible story. I think so. I, I, it is overlooked, and I think we touched on this before. It's the parallels between John's life at this point and 
Paul's life. So they both are marrying divorcees who have a child mm. of around the same age. So their, their, their lives are, ma- are moving in parallel. But Paul settles down into happy domesticity with Linda, with her daughter. They have a child. You know, John and Yoko can't have children. There are miscarriages. Her child is effectively kidnapped and disappeared and out of her life for, for uh, you know, two decades. It's, it's if those things hadn't happened, um, you know, if, if they had got custody and physical custody of Kyoko, if, if Yoko had uh, had the baby carry that uh, child to full term, how much, how different would things have been, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it, is, it is a tragic, it is a tragic uh, story. Um, and that brings us to the end of 1971. John and Yoko have been in New York for four months. They have gotten a lot done. They have plotted a course um, for what they are going to do next. And in the background of all of this, the Imagine album is kind of bouncing around the charts, selling tens of thousands of copies, which we, you know, it's, it, amusingly, you know, you'd think anybody doing talk shows at that time would be promoting their new album. It's just left to its own devices to fend for itself in the background. Like, it, it doesn't even get a look in. He's, he's moved on. He's moved on. He has moved on already. And again, that, I suppose that, that's characteristic, I suppose, of the Beatles as well. You know, you record something and then, you know, from the first single, they put the first single out and they're already thinking about Please Please Me. That he's, he's done Imagine and he's, he's off. He's moved on. Yeah, it is a very Beatles way of working. On to the next thing, on to the next thing, all the time. Um, so the end of the year is when people take a pause and that's where we're going to take a pause in this look at John and Yoko spending some time in New York City. The story continues in our next episode. Um, but don't forget we are available in all the usual places. Nothing is real pod. .com is the website, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group at Beatles Pod on Twitter. Uh, we want to thank everybody for supporting us on Acast Plus for all the uh, exclusive hidden episodes that exist over there. And um, for now, my name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. And we'll see you next time for some time in New York City on Nothing Is Real. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on ACAST Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.